so I grew up in the youth group. Pastor Tim um, was my youth pastor before, you know, our senior pastor. And some of you were here during that time. Many of you weren't. During that time, it was clear that Pastor Tim and both Pastor, both Pastor Bob and Pastor Tim had a burden and heart for evangelism, for reaching our community with the gospel. And that was something that um, I w was kind of unfamiliar to me uh, from the standpoint of I was accustomed to coming to a church that was predominantly filled with believers and a church that was predominantly filled with people that looked like me, that dressed like me, that had similar educational backgrounds. Like I went to a Christian school, so I was familiar with, you know, environments where it was mostly you know, kind of Christian school kids. Um, so when Pastor Tim came here and became a youth pastor, and when Pastor Bob and he worked together and began evangelizing our community, we had a summer outreach called The War. I don't know if you remember The War, um, but some of you actually attended it uh, as unbelievers and then are here now, which is really kind of awesome how The War works out. Um, I was one of the kids in the youth group that was in the youth group prior to the war and then after the war. And so we would have this evangelistic outreach. It was a three-day outreach. We would uh, really, where you sit, this was a, a big grass field before we built on this, uh, this, this addition. And we had games, and we literally had hundreds of teens come. And they came and played these games, and they beat each other up. And they're things that you're not allowed doing anymore in our society. But back then, it was the early 90s, so you could get away with it. Um, but after that, they'd hear a gospel message, and there would be a number of teens that would make professions of faith and come to Christ. And so the follow-up for that event was always something that me as a church youth group kid never looked forward to. And I say that with all seriousness. I didn't look forward to it because in my mind, I knew that really for the next three to four months, church would not be the same. And the reason why it wouldn't be the same is because, for the most part, youth group would consist of Pastor Tim giving the lion's share of his attention to all the kids that he was following up with. Meanwhile, they came, and they didn't look like me. I mean, their parents didn't come to church. I came to church. I came four times a week. I mean, like, all the time. You know, because that's what my parents made me do. But these kids, they didn't come. I mean, you know, we had kind of a quasi-youth group dress code. They never followed that. You know, they, they, they came in, and they had foul mouths. And, and, you know, as a teenager, I'm like, you know, what about me? And so usually about November to December was when a lot of the kids, honestly, would just kind of get back into school mode and stopped coming. And then it kind of weeded down to the core group with maybe a handful of other people. And that's when I felt like, okay, now we're back to the way it ought to be. Have any of you ever felt that way when you hear all this evangelism, discipleship talk? I'm talking to a Sunday night crowd. So I'm guessing that some of you would probably resonate with that. Where when you hear all this talk about evangelism, all this talk about discipleship, we rejoice in new birth, we rejoice in people being newly connected with discipleship, and here you have been perhaps attending here, serving here for years, decades. I mean, have any of you thought, so what spiritual problem do I need to have in order to get some attention? Have you ever thought that? Okay. So Acts chapter 11, believe it or not, addresses this phenomenon. When you have a church change so radically, but you have this blending of people who've been there 
who've been God worshipers, God fearers for quite some time. And then you have this new group come on in and now they blend. And now what? And can I tell you that as we look at Acts chapter 11 and as we read this section of the New Testament, we have to understand that this is a groundbreaking part of the Bible. I mean, this is the gospel now advancing into uncharted territory. While the emphasis can rightly be put on the new converts, and we saw that as we've been working through Acts chapter 10, we see how the emphasis was put on these Gentiles accepting Christ, Cornelius and Peter coming into the, this room and, 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 and seeing all these Gentiles and them openly accepting the, the word and, and, whoa, this was, this didn't take place with Jews. But now you have Jews and Gentiles. And so, all this attention given to these new Gentile converts. But, but I could make a case that Acts chapter 11 is actually written more about Christians than it is about the new converts. And when I say, I'm not saying that the new converts are Christians, but I'm saying that Acts chapter 11, as we see how it's laid out by the author, Luke, that we can make a case that Luke has more in mind those believers who've been there for a while and who've been serving and are still kind of adjusting to this new environment and perhaps thinking about, hey, what about us? What about us? These were men and women. They were called to reach others with gospel. And so I would say that Luke is writing to believers about the work of believers reproducing their faith and making more believers. That's the Great Commission, okay? So if you have your programs, there's a, a little, if you, you know, look in your programs and it says Monday, uh, Sunday morning and then Sunday evening has the text of Scripture and then it has a little statement. That little statement is, is what I want you to take home for tonight. And if you don't have a program, that's fine. You can just take it for, for what I'm about to say. The Great Commission will result in the promotion of believers, both new and old, and it will never demote any member of the body of Christ. Okay, let me say that again. The Great Commission will result in the promotion of believers, both new and old, and it will never demote any member of the body of Christ. Okay, so there's two parts of that. We'll work that out as we look at the Word. Before we do, let's pray. God, I thank You for these souls who have come here this evening to hear the Word. My heart is that they would hear it. May the words of my heart, my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in Your sight. And Lord, would the same be true of each soul here. If there are souls that don't know Christ that are underneath the sound of my voice, I pray that as they see the byproduct of the Gospel, that they might covet that that you might stir within them a desire to be born again. And God, for those who are newly born again and still enjoying the excitement of the change that is taking place and how much change is taking place, would they be encouraged as they see the gospel go forward here in this passage? And then, Lord, those souls who've been saved for many years, some longer than I've been alive, I pray that they might be encouraged as they see their role in the progression of the gospel, the Great Commission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to really make three different points, three points this evening, making my case for the Great Commission resulting in the promotion of believers both new and old and never demoting believers. Okay, so here's point one. When you obey the Great Commission, you get to see God save and promote new believers. So each one of my points is going to start with that phrase, when you obey the Great Commission. All right, so that's an understood, that's a given 
And so I want to show you three things that take place when you obey the Great Commission. If you don't know what the Great Commission is, the Great Commission. This is Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. God has called each saint, each Christian, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ and to carry the message of the good news to those around him that God brings into contact with him. We don't simply bide our time here as Christians waiting to hear the trumpet and to get on out of here. No, we have been called to interact with believers and unbelievers alike. But especially when we interact with unbelievers, we have hope. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so by sharing it, seeing unbelievers come to Christ and being added to the body of Christ, we're fulfilling the Great Commission. Okay? So that's Great Commission in a nutshell. But when you obey the Great Commission, you're going to see three things. First one is you get to see God save and promote new believers. So here in Acts chapter 11, we have a retelling of what takes place in Acts chapter 10. In fact, if you were doing a read through the Bible in a year devotional, and you read Acts 10 on one day, and then the next day you read Acts 11, I'm guessing you might flip the page back and say, am I reading the exact same thing? Because it sure seems like it. And the answer would be, yeah, it does sure seem like it. You are. Because in Acts chapter 11, Peter is giving an account of what took place in Acts chapter 10. Let's start looking there in verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were throughout Judea, primarily Jerusalem, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, these Jews, took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence, saying, and he goes through the story up until we get to verses uh, 17 and 18, and we'll talk about those verses in just a moment. The story really is about Christians. So Peter has gone to a Gentile's house because he saw a vision from the Lord, saw this vision where this sheet of these unclean animals was there, and God told him to eat, and Peter says, no, I can't do that, they're unclean, and God says to him, what I declare clean, don't call unclean, and he, that happens three times. He's also told that there's going to be a man, or there's three people standing at his door, go with them. Now, when he gets down to them, they take them to an, a man's house named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile. Cornelius had also seen a vision from God, saying that there is a man named Peter who's living in a tanner's house. He's going to come to you, and you listen to him. In fact, it says there, uh, let's see, just lost uh, my place. Uh, verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them, these men, without misgivings. The six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man house, man's house. And he reported, verse 13, how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So he see, receives a vision that's saying, Peter's going to come, listen to him, and you're going to be saved. Well, that's a good thing. Okay? But here's the deal. Acts chapter 11 basically is almost like you know, a CD skipping where you're hearing the same thing. Because Acts chapter 10 already talked about this in great detail. So why is Acts chapter 11 saying the exact same thing as Acts chapter 10? 
Can I tell you that one of the most important characters in this chapter is a character not mentioned in the story? You know who that character is? It's the reader. The reader. You see, Luke is writing to a man by the name of most excellent Theophilus. We read that back in Acts chapter 1. But he's writing an account of our church history. This is our family history. If you're a Gentile and you're reading this, this is your history. Meaning this, you have been able to hear and receive the gospel because of the events that are about to take place. And that's pretty awesome. And if you're a Jew and you're reading this, you're thinking something is happening here that's never happened before. And God is kind of acting in ways that he hasn't acted before. Are you sure this is legitimate? Are you sure this is true? And so when Luke writes this, he's careful to write these details so that the reader can leave with no mistake as to what is going on and who is doing it. Look down in verse 17. This is key. Therefore, if God gave them, this is now Peter talking to the critics at Jerusalem, the ones who said, hey, we heard that you were hanging out with Gentiles. And he gives them this whole story. And then he says to them, therefore, if God gave to them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the key. If you have a pen, underline this if you believe in writing your Bibles. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? God was doing something, and I can't stand in his way. I don't want to stand in his way. I saw God change these people, Peter's saying. They received the Holy Spirit. They desired baptism, just like you all, just like me. And this is so true, I'm going to tell you twice, Luke says. You're going to read it earlier, and now you're going to read it now. Okay? And what happens? Verse 18. When they heard this, the critics, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to eternal life. So, you have these offended Jews, in verse 3, becoming rejoicing Jewish brothers, in verse 18. There's a pretty big change. Now, like I said, this, the reader is looking at this and probably scratching his head thinking, is this true? Because Jews and Gentiles don't intermix. That's not supposed to take place. But now we have this bridge being formed between Jew and Gentile. And not only that, this is something that God was behind. This wasn't just manufactured by a bunch of charismatic guys. God was doing this. And if you notice their response in verse 18, it's not that they just quieted down and said, well, okay, people are going to get saved. Yeah, okay. No, they actually rejoiced. You see, some commentators, when they read verse 18, they look at it and they see kind of two different parties within the church of Jerusalem there. They see those who are the critics and those who are kind of idly standing by. And then when Peter gives his story, you know, the critics are quiet, and then those who are idly standing by were like, yeah, we knew it all along. Yay! I don't read it like that. In fact, what I see here in verse 18 is when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. I don't see two different groups of people. I see one group of people changing, rejoicing. 
Because God was doing something. He was saving souls. People way different than them. Yet, now just like them. Because they had now received the Spirit. They were now brothers and sisters in Christ. And they say, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This, cha- this was a change, not just of intellect, but also disposition, their demeanor. They were rejoicing that God was directing the gospel to a group heretofore unreached. Now, this rejoicing would lead to inevitably welcoming them in. Because we're at a part in Acts right now where the evangelism is taking place out there and you still had the church of Jerusalem here. You know? So there there was kind of like these people being saved out here and, and you still had this kind of close community of Jews in here. So they hadn't really intertwined just yet, but they were about to. And in four chapters, Acts 15, we see what happens. What happens is there's some Big questions. Should these Gentiles get circumcised? What about all this meat they're eating? What about some of the immorality that they're bringing in? Whoa, what's going on here? And you have the first council that takes place. And guess what? It it ends peaceably. Feel free to read ahead. I mean, we highly encourage you to read ahead in the book of Acts to see how the story eventually ends. And in fact, Revelation is how it really ends. But that's for another day. This rejoicing, though, like I said, was kind of at a distance because what we learn about not only just Christians, what we kind of learn about ourselves is that when God changes us in this process of the Great Commission, in the process of new believers being added, sometimes that change is somewhat short-lived. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're not going to turn to many different passages, but this is one that I do want us to look at. Galatians chapter 2. Look at verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, or the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to circumcise effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter, who had been reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So you have two different groups now. You have some of the disciples, James, Peter, and John going to the Jews, and then Paul and Barnabas going to the Gentiles. This is fine. But verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, the apostle of the Gentiles, was carried away by their hypocrisy. You see, this joy that was experienced by Peter was legitimate. It was genuine. But can I tell you, it was something that had to be maintenanced. And if someone like Peter can lose the joy when it comes to the intertwining of believers and unbelievers together, then how easy would it be for us? When all of a sudden, our comfort zones are impeded upon, even within the walls of our church. 
The place where we want to come to to get away. Is that what this is? I mean, is that why we're here? Just to get away? I mean, it's one thing to send out missionaries to the, to the mission field. But what happens when the mission field comes to our front door and comes in our doors? What then? Well, when the Great Commission goes forward and when you obey the Great Commission, you get to see God save and promote new believers. And I use that word promote for a, a reason. Okay? So we get to see God save and promote new believers. Now at this point in the story, the Jerusalem saints, they could rejoice. We said that you know, there they, they was still a distance here and that distance would be bridged a few chapters later. But what I want us to do is I want us to go back to Acts chapter 11 because the story's not done. Acts chapter 11. And we'll keep going. So when you obey the Great Commission... You get to see God save and promote new believers. But point two, when you obey the Great Commission, you get to see older and newer believers promote the gospel with each other. When you obey the Great Commission, you get to see older and newer believers promote the gospel with each other. Look at verse 19 of chapter 11. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, this is back Acts 8, Stephen was killed. Right? First martyr, all of a sudden, the Jews are starting to be persecuted. They're starting to be killed. They're scattered. Okay? They were told to go into all the world, but they didn't. They were kind of staying at home in Jerusalem. And so it took persecution to get them going. So that was one of those providential acts of God where persecution actually came, brought about obedience to God. You know, they weren't going to all the world, but when they started getting persecuted, that's when they started going. Okay? So now they were going. And those who were scattered, verse 19, because of the persecution that occurred with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also, preaching to the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached to the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So this is, this is you know, information, you know, news bulletin number two. You know, Peter was eating with Gentiles and Cornelius, and people were saved. Now, all of a sudden, there's these people that are being saved in this city called Antioch. Now, Antioch was more like a Hellenistic city. About one-seventh of the city was Jewish. Most of it was Gentile. And in fact, when we read here in verse 19 about these individuals, I'm sorry, verse 19, verse 20, some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, these would have been what we would have called Hellenistic Jews. Okay? Hellenistic Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews. They were Jews that were part of the scattered Jews. But they were speaking Greek because they weren't just there in Jerusalem. So now they were able to interact with Gentiles. And in fact, we see that in verse, at the end of verse 20, and began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus there in Antioch. And so you have this evangelistic effort bringing about new saints. And the news comes all the way back to Jerusalem. And they can't believe it. So they send Barnabas out to go check it out. Now this is Barnabas who was the one who was a partner with Paul, who we just read about. 
verse 23, then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with all resolute heart, all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, I said before that when you obey the Great Commission, you get to see older and newer believers promote the gospel with one another. Who are the newer believers in this section? Well, we see these believers from Cyprus and Cyrene going to Antioch, and you have these new believers there in Antioch. You also have in verse 25, Barnabas looking for Saul, who himself was kind of a new believer. But then you have this kind of wedding of new and old. And and here's where Barnabas comes into play. Because Barnabas was a known commodity there to the church in Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 24, it says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. As one commentator noted, a lot was riding on the testimony of Barnabas. All this stuff that was happening there out in Antioch, all these Gentiles getting saved, all of this, this weird evangelism stuff. I mean, again, remember the Jewish community was, was an internal community. This was a new phenomenon. You know, you don't see evangelism in Old Testament Israel minus maybe Jonah. It was the responsibility for everyone to come to Israel and to acclimate, not for Israel to go everywhere else and win converts. So in the New Testament, now you have this new way. And Jesus says, go. And they're going. And it's odd. And it's uncomfortable. But the Lord was saving people. And Luke is writing to Theophilus and Luke is writing to others and saying, this is a work of God. Again, we see the reader and how important the reader is in verse 24. You say, how do you see that? Well, look in verse 24. You have credentials of Barnabas. Barnabas was legit. He was the guy that could be trusted. They were going to send him and he wasn't just going to tell them what they wanted to hear. And what did he tell them? He told them that you now had these new believers working together and growing in the Lord and God doing a work. And so as the Great Commission goes forward, you see older believers and newer believers intertwined with one another, spreading the gospel. Note the diversity and the number of believers in this first church plant. Okay, we talk about church planting. Antioch is the first church plant ever in church history. Okay? How do we know that? Well, verse 26. After Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought with him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is also a really important part of our own family history, our church history. This is the first place that they were called Christians. So you say, okay, that's, that's, that's important. I think it might make for good Bible trivia. But really, what's the significance of that? Well, here's the significance. Imagine being Peter. Okay, if you're Peter or you're Barnabas or you're Paul. And all of a sudden now you're called a Christian. What does that identify you as? What can I tell you? It identifies you as something that you haven't been identified as ever before. This is something brand new. And it was something fundamentally different from Judaism. Guess what? Their identity was different now. This term Christians was most likely a derogatory term. 
brought on by unbelievers, by the unbelieving, you know, those who were seeing this, this taking place, these Gentiles, seeing these Jews and Gentiles intermixing and saying, hey, there's something different going on. God's doing something, something is doing something. But, you know, we're just going to call you Christians, these little Christs, because you keep talking about this Jesus guy. So that's what we're going to call you. And eventually, they came to embrace this term. But they were first called Christians. And think of the Gentiles. I mean, you, not only just the Jews here who were now called Christians, now you have Gentiles who, for all we know, could have just been pagans. But now they were identified in the same way and kind of in the same band of brothers and sisters as these Jews that they would have never interacted with before. Now all of a sudden they're one group, Christians. And you know who can do that? God can. And God does. And when we see the church, may we always see it as something that God brings together. And not just simply matters of compatibility or matters of socioeconomic similarity or matters of you know, personal preference, matters of culture, matters of ethnicity. No, the church is something that God brings together. So if God brings it together and we're okay with that, then we have to not only just, I mean, if we say we're okay with that, we have to be okay with the fact that God chooses who he brings us together with. Amen. And, and that demands something from us. You know, when we read especially Philippians 2, where we're called to put the interests of others ahead of our own. And in doing so, we imitate the ultimate example of that, who is Christ. You know, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You know, taking upon him the form of servant. So, when you obey the Great Commission, you get to see God save and promote new believers. When you obey the Great Commission, you get to see older and newer believers promote the gospel with one another. And then finally, when you obey the Great Commission, you get to see, and this is, this is a great part of the story, you get to see newer believers promote older believers. You get to see newer believers promote older believers. You say, where do you see that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 27. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, okay? And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now these prophets of Jerusalem, this would have been part of maybe the original Jews, you know, the, the, the church there in Jerusalem, home base. And they were going out, and now they were ministering to their brothers and sisters in Christ in Antioch, this newer believing body, this, this church. And they came out, and they had a message from the Lord. And they shared it. And those believers in turn ministered back to the mother church. And so we see these disciples in Antioch, though they weren't necessarily spreading the gospel, they were assisting the believers living in Judea. I mean, they were spreading the gospel in Antioch, but what they were doing is they were turning help back to Jerusalem. The first church plant was able to assist the mother church in Jerusalem in times of need. Now, it's interesting when you look at church history to see what God did through the church of Antioch. Can I just read you just a couple, uh, several characteristics of the church of Antioch? Church of Antioch was the birthplace of foreign missions. 
Acts chapter 13, we'll read about that, where this is where, you know, global evangelism really started taking place out of the church of Antioch. This was Paul's home base for his missionary journeys. The three primary missionary journeys, he always started in Antioch, always came back to Antioch. It was where believers in Christ were first called Christians. We talked about that. And then listen to the list of teachers, not just in the first century, century there, but over the course of the next three to four centuries. Of course, they had Paul. They had Peter. They had Barnabas. Those of you who are familiar with church history, they had Ignatius. They had Theophilus. In the third and fourth centuries, they had Lucian, Theodore, John Chrysostom, and Theodoret. Giants of early Christianity who helped really clarify, consolidate, and, and be able to articulate Christian doctrine out of this church. What a blessing it was to see for these believers in Jerusalem how the gospel was spreading to a place and people were being saved and the gospel was going forward. The Great Commission involves the promotion of both older Christians and newer Christians because the Great Commission is the promotion and the proclamation of the gospel. Okay? Don't forget that. The Great Commission involves the promotion of both older Christians and newer Christians because the Great Commission is the promotion and the proclamation of the gospel. So going back to my initial uh, story about me growing up here at Grace Church and the evangelistic outreach, and me not really being comfortable with it, being just kind of a church kid. So back when I was in the youth group, and those of us church kids felt like we were being left behind. Who was at fault? Was it Pastor Tim's fault? Was it our fault? Can I tell you, as a pastor, when I walk into a room, and I'm just going to be personal here with you. It's Sunday night crowd, so we can do this. When I walk into a room, my eyes almost immediately go to people I don't know. I look for people in a room that I don't know when I come to a place like this. Because my heart is to make sure that they aren't sitting here by themselves. I mean, we are a church family, right? And so my heart is to see you all connect with people that perhaps are unknown here. And so when they come in, whatever their first impression is, they see the love of Jesus Christ expressed by us as leadership and by you all. But can I tell you, and I say this to my fault, and I can also say that every one of the other pastors will also say this, sometimes we do that at the expense of looking past some of you who have been here for years. And that's not right. And I'm sorry. I... I'm confident that if I haven't already, I probably will at some point in time walk right by you and act as if you don't exist because I'm seeing that person. You deserve, as a priest believer, as a child of God, each one of you deserves to have individual attention. I can't give it to you personally at least not all at once. Neither can Pastor Tim, neither can Pastor Kent, neither can Pastor Larry or Pastor Steve. But we want to. You know, in the Bible, when it talks about the pastor, it talks, there's, there's actually several terms describing the role of the pastor. 
There's overseer, there's elder, there's bishop, there's preacher. But one of those terms is shepherd. I was thinking about this. To be a shepherd at some level is to be discontent when you're with the 99 and the one isn't there. And there's just something about what God has called your pastors to do that our minds, and I'm not saying it's always done in the right way, but our minds are thinking about the person who they wish was there or the person who's walked away or the person who might be unbelieving, even though we're in the company of the 99. There's going to be a day when that is done, when we're all with the Lord and we just commingle and we do it for eternity. And I praise the Lord for that. But in the meantime, I'm asking you for your patience as we manage the tension. And I don't, I'll just describe it as tension, angst, whatever other words that, that are, are appropriate that I feel when I come to be with the body of believers, especially as our body grows. Because I want to be able to give each one of you attention right now. And so does Pastor Tim. Do you know how many pastors of churches this size give out their cell phone number? Not many. Pastor Tim gives out his cell phone number like Gail Pritchard gives out candy. <laughs> Very liberally. Okay. So, I say that that's a tension, and I ask for your patience. But can I also take a step back and look at myself in my mid-adolescent arrogance in that youth group, recognizing that the fault was also mine? My thinking was that he should be there for me, for us. This core group that when all the other kids come from the war and they're here for three months and they get the pizza and they get all this and then they eventually kind of peter out and go away, we're going to be here. So be here for us. Okay. This is what the Jewish Christians at some level were kind of thinking about Peter. Maybe for different reasons, but not so much. Those unsaved kids, like I said, I, there's just this part of me that, that, that looked at that and just had frustration and angst and whatever. But what was our role in that? And, and as I look back on that, I see myself really more as a consumer. That I was there for me. Give me. And, 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 and I want to be careful. Here, and I hope I don't step on too many toes. I think even some of the parents who had children in the youth group at the time, who saw some of the same tension, whose kids were coming regularly, who deserved pastoral attention, maybe didn't get it the way they thought they should. Sad part is that the church and Christianity was what we could get out of it and not what we could put into it. And this is the point. I've been using the word promoted this whole time for a reason. Because I felt like, and perhaps you feel like, you're being demoted. That the promotion of the new saint, the promotion of the discipling relationship is actually the demotion of you. And that is not true. 
Does anyone feel demoted when we introduce a new baby to our congregation? This is a new life. We, we rejoice with those who rejoice. Amen. There's a, a natural, I would say supernatural, even joy that we ought to have when someone is added to the flock or when someone is now learning the Word. And I can either choose to sit back and feel like, when am I going to get mine? Or, or, I can be part of this. I can join this. The example we see in Acts 11 is this. Who has God placed around you in the church that He's given you now the opportunity to invest in? I don't know if she's here. I don't want to mention her name because she'd be terribly embarrassed. But one of our senior saints came up to me the other day. Actually, it was a, a couple of years ago. It wasn't the other day. It was a couple of years ago. And said, yeah, the other day, a couple of years ago. A little difference. Um, but she was saying, you know what? I felt, you know, Pastor Tim has been talking about this discipleship thing. And, and uh, just talking about, you know, matching up with someone. And, and here was a lady that I didn't know. And I just felt convicted. And so I said, hey, do you want to do a Bible study together? This is a woman in her 70s, 80s. And they're still studying the Bible to this day. It's pretty awesome stuff. But it really was a matter of, okay, so am I going to sit and watch or am I going to get going? And there are varying seasons of life. And, and can I say this? And I say this with sympathy, that perhaps your season of life might be something to where you're actually having to scale back from that instead of ramping up to that. And I want to really be sensitive to that especially if you're perhaps in your childbearing years or perhaps if your health isn't cooperating and there's things that you'd like to do. And, and can I just say to all of this, one underlying principle that helps fuel all of this is prayer. And regardless of your physical abilities, we can all pray. Your sense of value and significance in the body of Christ will be directly proportional to your interest in souls. Okay, let me say that again. Your sense of value and your significance in the body of Christ will be directly proportional to your interest in souls. Listen, your busyness will not bestow value. Nor the number of ministries you're involved in, but the interest in the souls of the believers and unbelievers around you. The advance of the gospel is unstoppable. Even as Peter told his Jewish critics, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Peter makes it clear that this was work of God's doing from beginning to end. This is what the spread of the gospel is. God's doing. But God's doing is done through us. What a blessing that is. We can sit on the sidelines or we can join the action. Now, if Pastor Tim and Pastor Bob had not had the heart of evangelism, and trust me, I'm a firm believer in God's sovereignty, okay? So hear me when I say this. Had Pastor Bob and Pastor Tim not had the evangelistic heart that they had, I could say with a, a bit of certainty that I wouldn't be speaking to you here tonight. And I don't even know if I'd be saved because of their heart for the souls that God had given them to share Christ with them. Their heart to disciple me and to bring me along the way and deal with maybe an inpatient adolescent and then help model and lead and model and lead and disciple and, and, and so on and so forth. I feel like I am the beneficiary of their obedience. So my question is this. Who will God allow to be the beneficiary of your obedience. 
Who will God allow to be the beneficiary of your obedience? Instead of feeling demoted, like, I have a spiritual problem. Come minister to me. Instead of feeling demoted, who will be promoted by you and your obedience to the Great Commission? We've been called to have a part in it. This isn't just for the elite or the people that sit at the benches up here. So they're up here and you're down there. This is all of us. And we can't, well, God's gospel is going to go forward. Would it be through all of us? Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just the cast of characters in Acts 11. All the souls that were involved in the spread of the gospel. Some great, some mentioned only in this passage alone. But God, as we see you doing a work, and we praise you for the work that you're doing, Lord, I think even of the souls in this room that have been saved recently, we rejoice in that. But God, as we persevere, may we fight against the struggle to find our worth in earthly measurements of significance. God, please help us to value souls that people are going to spend somewhere forever. And Lord, we don't have to have a type A personality. We don't have to be charismatic. We don't have to be good looking. We don't have to have a beautiful family. We don't have to have a lot of money. God, you just want us to be obedient. And we'll see you bless that. I ask that and pray that for each soul here they might see just how great it is to have a role in the Great Commission. Sometimes it is as scary as can be. Sometimes the lump is in our throat. Our hearts are pounding in the chest. We don't know what to say. We think we're going to mess it up. It's a person that we know and we're going to see maybe the next week. And then what are they going to think of us? Give us wisdom as we live, give us wisdom as we talk. But God, we pray for fruit from the efforts. We pray for your name to be given glory. And Lord, we even sing about the opportunity to one day we will worship with those to whom we share the gospel with. May that be on the forefront of our minds as we go forward. We love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, change us through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.